Welcome to the Monday Morning Cornerback. This is Eric McKinney, joined as always by Daryl Rideau. Daryl, we're going to get into USC 27, Notre Dame 30. Uh, this was a game that I don't know how many people really expected USC to go into South Bend and you know give Notre Dame a game or come away with a win. I, I would certainly bet that more people thought it would be a blowout with, with Notre Dame really kind of showing why they're a top 10 team and, and why USC has struggled. In that sense, and this is something I'm, I'm going to go on this again before I actually bring you in and have you say anything. It, it feels, again, a lot like the Washington game. Obviously, the score is different, but when you look at the game and when you look at sort of how head coach Clay Helton, the other coaches, the players, are talking about coming out of the game, with Clay Helton specifically, it feels, again, like he wants to talk about this thing in a 60-minute increment. That one game, an unranked USC team going to Notre Dame and falling behind early, rallying, getting it together, and eventually losing by three points, if that's the only script you have, if that's all you're looking at, yeah, there are some positives to take out of there. When you look at it in, this, in the sense of, this is one data point in a whole long list of them now. There were again things where it's like that is still cropping up, that is still not fixed. And really, the three point loss, there's not there's nothing to take away from it. I mean, positively, again, when you're looking at it in the scope of the last two sort of two plus years, uh, with, with Clay Helton there, and that that's kind of where I stand again. It's it's you have to look at this team as these kind of two forks. There, there's the one fork that's just the 2019 season. How did they look at the beginning of the year? How are they looking as they go along? And then the other fork, how did they look when Clay Helton took over this program? And how do they look now? Uh, trying to talk about those things in, in two different ways is certainly interesting, but it, it feels like that's how – Clay Helton wants to do this. He wants to talk about that individual game, maybe, you know, backed with the, the Washington game, but th there's not a lot of talk uh, in terms of kind of where they are as a program right now, which I think is one of the big frustrating things right. um, for, for fans when they hear about it. But we'll go ahead. Let, let's just discuss kind of this game right now, USC Notre Dame, uh, the, the three-point loss. Give me your sort of big takeaways uh, from that game being there. Okay. And, um, and of course, we are going to focus on this game, Eric. But I do want to comment one thing. Yeah, You're no, absolutely, you, you are absolutely right about Clay Helton wanting to condition us into thinking that this is a very young team. Offensively and defensively in certain places, you can make that argument. But this is a very young team coming back with a ton of experience. Okay, so it's hard for us to believe that we're going back to the Adam Sandler movie, Fifty First Dates, where every week we're starting over and we're, you're, we're, we're, we're trying to be conditioned to simply judge this team in a vacuum based on the merits of what happens during that week. But it's hard to do so when you look at the body of work. And the body of work, again, coming off of a bye, rears its head in a game where many people, as you alluded to, 
including those, those in the desert in Vegas that, uh, that sets the, um, the, the spreads, didn't see an, an SC team coming into South Bend and really going blow to blow with the ninth ranked team in the country. And at times, if you took the records out, you couldn't tell who was the ranked team. Both teams were ranked because that's what happens in an intersectional rival rivalry game such as the, the SC Notre Dame game. You expect the best from both sides. But I got to admit, I like the game plan going into the game uh, with uh, offensive coordinator Graham Harrell and how he got Keaton Slovis coming off of concussion protocol, taking advantage of a bye week, got him to stay within the confines of the offense. Now, again, what I didn't like was it only led to three points. Um, and the fact that they didn't really challenge Notre Dame on the perimeters, didn't get Michael Pittman Jr. involved in Tyler Vaughn, but were able to take advantage of some key matchups with Amon Ross St. Brown. Now, much of that had to do with Notre Dame's scheme. They were committed to making sure that um, Pittman Jr. was not going to have those explosive 40-yard chunk plays. So they ran a star coverage, meaning that they rolled the corner over and they had a safety high at all times. And they were, they were determined to allow for someone else to beat this SC team. Um, so what did SC do, Eric? They went to the running game. And I thought that the way they were patient with the running game in the first half was a shock for me, very much so because this is a team that's demonstrated throughout the course of the season that they really simply want to run just enough so that they can get back to an effective passing game. But I thought in the first half, in terms of their approach, keeping, keeping the um, time of possession very close and the offense um, on the field balance with the running game was very effective. But because it did not result into a lot of points, um, they were able to allow for Notre Dame to be spotted 17 points going into halftime, 17 to three. Yeah, I, I think your, your comment about the run game and how they did kind of show some stick-to-itiveness there in terms of play calling early on, I, I think that that kind of deserves to be, to be mentioned. And that was one of the things that stood out to me too. And, and I don't mean this in... Uh, you know, 100% just kind of laud, you know, f a phenomenal job in the run game because there are still some issues there. But if you look at sort of a play-by-play -play, uh, in the first half, the, the first drive, first play, a run play. The second drive, the first play, a run play. The third drive, the first play, a run play. The fourth drive, the first play, a run play. Run play. And on those runs – they go seven yards, seven yards, 19 wow. yards, four yards. Wow. Uh, oh, sorry. The next drive, another 19-yard run. I, I mean, this is something where they really did uh, – surprising to me, they really did show run early. The yep. problem with this team is that they can't go to the run game whenever they want. Because whenever they want. Uh, but of those drives in the first half, you had two – they got knocked down by by um, by third down sacks. I mean that that was something yes. where you're you know you're trying to throw, you can't block everybody. You take a sack and you're punting. But inside of those two drives, the thing that did them in 
again, first down runs. So Stephen yeah. Carr uh, on the second drive. Stephen Carr gets dropped for a two-yard loss on first down. Right. Uh, on the next drive, Marquis Stepp gets dropped for a three-yard loss on first down. The next drive, Stephen Carr gets dropped for a one-yard loss on first down. <laughs> and so oh, you oh, just but but, but that, that speaks to something different though okay or but you, you talked about those first few series um or drives where they're running on first down but here's what that did for slowness it gave him manageable second and third down situations mm-hmm. where it get you know the, the offense had a chance now the problem is now you become very predictable <laughs> because they can the other team notre dame their defensive coordinator is figuring out, okay, you're running primarily and heavily on first down. Well, at some point, you got to give us some type of play-action pass. You got to give us a wrinkle off of that and then come back to the jab if, if the jab is being, you know, um, running on first down. So there's, a, in, in certain regards, you kind of like what they do, but they fall into a doldrum. USC's offense at times falls into this, this predictable state of mind where when another team adjusts, you're waiting for them to counter punch and you just don't see it timely. And I think that that's the difference between uh, a, a team ranked ninth in the country that, that we perceive to be well coached versus a team that's still trying to figure out its true form of identity um, offensively. And, you know, to, to elaborate on, on, on what you're saying on that, that is why USC was held to three points. It's because like you said, they fell behind on, on, on those certain yardage and it allowed for Notre Dame now to adjust their coverage and dictate. We're still waiting for this offense to, to take command and be uh, decisive on how they're going to approach, whether it's the run plays or pass plays, and dictate to their opponent. We have yet to see them will, this, will themselves into a situation where when they need to run, like you talked about, they can effectively go to the run. Instead, what do we get? We get a lot of hero ball. You take out the car and you bring in the SUV and marquee step, and his body structure made it very difficult and wore down Notre Dame at times. But you oftentimes are putting him in the backfield without a lead, uh, without a lead blocker. And as a result, it's the yards after contact that you have to rely upon. And to me, that's hero ball, because now, instead of a scheme allowing for him to get those chunk yard plays, it's him, um, you know, it's, it's the yards after contact that's an individual effort that you're having to rely upon. Yeah, and, and that certainly goes, goes to my point, where you talk about the difference between a team ranked ninth and, a, and an unranked team. At any point, were you surprised when Notre Dame ran the ball? I mean, it got to a point where you just expected it over and over and over, and they found success. You hear coaches talk about it all the time. A good team, a good running team, is a team that can run when another team, when when the opponent knows it's coming. And on, like I mentioned, I I liked the number of first down runs that they called. It gave you an idea on those those, – drives when they stalled because of those first down losses on run plays it just shows you usc is not that running team yet they're not physical enough up front to just okay fine the run didn't work get two yards out of it get three yards out get three yards you can't have a negative play yeah i think it was three three or four drives in a row that that stopped you 
for, from continuing to move the ball down. And that's after, again, they, they can find some success in the run game. It's just and, not there all the time. All the time. And, and, and just looking back. at it, okay, here's a disparity, right? In this game, both teams uh, had 25 first downs, okay? USC had 11 rushing first downs. Notre Dame had 17. Passing 14 for USC, 7 for um, Notre Dame, and then, of course, one penalty. It's the 35 attempts that you like by USC, but it's Notre Dame's 48 attempts that sealed the game. That's the difference, right? You know, and and so when when you think about where these two programs are, you talked about you know when you when Notre Dame lines up to run the ball, you know what you're about to get. When USC lines up, you're hoping that they can just get something positive going. <laughs> hoping versus knowing is the difference between what the sentiment of a player would feel on the sideline. Man, I just hope we can just stay on the field long enough to give me a breather. You know can we get something going? You start to get anxious and that anxiety oftentimes leads to players starting to press and do things out of the ordinary. But, but coming out of halftime, again, score was 17 to three. Did you like the way that USC kind of figured some things out and was able to disrupt the rhythm and timing of Notre Dame, getting them off the field on, on multiple drives um, ending in punt yardage in the third quarter and was able to kind of turn things around and, and get some production, at least enough to get the score close enough to put them within three points going into the, um, you know, the early part of the fourth quarter. You know, you know what? I, I thought they were done at, at halftime. You have that, you know, the, the, you know, it got billed as a fight. It was not a fight. Uh, but, but you had the little kind of tussle at midfield uh, you're down 14. It's sort of gone the way it's gone. You're at Notre Dame. That combined with Notre Dame, you know, I, I think that one of the big turning points was letting go of that ball on that kickoff return to open the second half. It was one of those things where a USC uh, defender just flat out missed a tackle that I think would have started Notre Dame at like the 15 or, or inside 15, the 20. Yeah. And he's off. He's gone. He drops the ball. Uh, at the time, you didn't think like, oh, that saved the game. At the time, I thought, here we go. Here, here comes the momentum, and they're going to get rolled. And you mentioned, were, were you impressed with kind of how they fought? Yes. Again, yes. Like, this team, they have gotten behind early. They have had momentum sort of roll against them a lot this year. And they've been able to stay with it and really fight and do well. And I think that is something that they should be commended on. Now, that's a different discussion from should they be in those positions in the first place. Should they place. be in it? Yeah, exactly. I, I understand those are two different discussions. But adversity is going to hit. And we've see, we saw this team last year just completely unable to deal with it. And, and yeah. we've seen this team this year – able to deal with it and kind of pull themselves back up and get back into games. And I right. think that does make a statement about kind of where their mindset is. And again, you, you know, you kind of say these things knowing that a lot of USC fans are, are just going to dismiss it or not want to hear it in the first place, but it does show some progression um, from last year to this year and even throughout this season. 
Again, well, we well, not well, talking Eric, about is the program in a healthy place and is it's everything It's not in a healthy well. place. Exactly. We're, we're not saying that, okay? Right. But, but when you talk about the mentality of the player and how their body language is different this year than last, it's because they become immune to these things. It's almost like they build it into the equation. We're going to give up chunk yard, chunk plays like they did to the kid Braden Lindsay on the end around. What have we been seeing all season long? Yeah. I know we're supposed to focus on this game in a vacuum, but when mistakes of the past continue to rear its head, and it's even worse when you're coming off of a bye week where you have the opportunity to shore up stronger edges so that teams running the fly series or reverses cannot beat you around the corner. Now, there were two examples of, of, of such that really just put USC at a disadvantage. The one I talked about right now with number 25 from Notre Dame, Braden, um, Braden Lindsey, that 51-yard end around where he caught so much speed and momentum, he just flat out outran the pursuit. But the problem is the pre-snap read. You got two layers. You got the defensive line on one plane and the secondary on another. Instead of it being like a mushroom, so to speak, where you have texture, and I use this term a lot, texture, meaning that the defensive line is on one plane, Five yards deeper, you have a coming down at a pursuit angle, linebackers that are, are there to clean up, either hitting the A-gap or sweeping out to what they call the C-gap, outside the tackles. Because we're not seeing that, it's putting tremendous pressure on guys like uh, Christian Rector and, and Drake Jackson to seal the edges, but yet they're getting chipped. So the moment that they get chipped and sealed, there is no one out there to, to a secondary contain to take away those edges. The other time is you just got to give it up to Ian Book. He just flat out, out outran the pursuit of, of um, Christian Rector, who may be hobbled by an injury, but even if he wasn't hobbled by an injury, my man is just a better athlete on that play, being the quarterback from Notre Dame, Ian Book. But it's those chunk plays that if, you, if USC can just simply eliminate them and give themselves a fighting chance, you're talking about the difference of within this game. But again, despite all of those mistakes, like you said, they're able to almost like, because I think that somewhat they're immune to it, kind of overcome that with their athleticism and their talent. They find themselves in a dogfight going into the start of the fourth quarter. But once again, an untimely penalty rears its head defensively which could have easily have gotten USC off the field. It was a rough in the passer play by um, Palia Neoteote, EA, hitting the quarterback. Um, you and I have probably a different perception of this. Uh, I think it was the right call simply because from my vantage point, it looked like he, he threw his body at the quarterback. And once you give your body up in the air, you're at the mercy of whatever happens. But based on the replays that you were able to see, Eric, did you think that it was a worthy call from a Pac-12 team uh, official crew that struggled? Even at the end of the first half, they assessed the penalty on Notre Dame and UCLA. Last I heard, it was USC facing Notre Dame. I didn't know UCLA was in this battle. Yeah, uh, was I, in I that mean, fight. <laughs> you know, with, with Pac-12 officials, it's always kind of a, a wild ride. I, I, so with that penalty, it, it becomes one of those things where if you're going to call that, then call you have, you have to call every single hit like that throughout the course of the year. They don't. 
And, and so that's where I think it becomes, uh, it, it's, it's always sort of my, my pet peeve with officiating and, and maybe baseball is more, but it's when, you know, an, an official sees a big opportunity or, or a big play in, you know, kind of a, a tight spot of, of, situation where momentum can really swing and you know it's like a runner if he's out at first they like they bang him out so hard if, if there's a personal foul call they throw the flag you know 50 yards in the air and they bring sort of emotion into it and that felt like one of those things where because of that time in the game the official was looking to you know to, to make a big call and so to me if that hit happens you know on the first series of the game I don't think it gets called. I'd be, I would be really surprised. Um, but again, like you said, if you're hitting the quarterback after the ball came out of his hand, which is true, um, I, you have a chance to get flagged for that. And, and I don't think they give, I don't think officials now, especially because with replay, things always look worse than, than they are kind of uh, in the spur of the moment. But I don't think officials give players enough leeway in, in terms of trying to understand what they see or in that right. time. Um, we see now quarterbacks, how, how big and strong they are. If they pull the ball back after it looks like they've thrown it and a defender lets up, they're gone. You know, especially, so, that, especially that quarterback. That quarterback a, a guy who could run, a, yeah. So, so for me, it's, it's not even worth – you know, the, the Brian Kelly, the, the Brian Kelly, you know, should have been penalty at the end of the game. Those things aren't really even worth discussing because, you know, it's it's a grab bag when you go in with with the Pac-12 right. officiating crew. You're going to get a couple things like that. You can't leave it up to them. They didn't make the score 17-3 going in at halftime. Uh, so, so there's so many. And, and let, let, let's be clear. I mean, relative to these highlighted plays that we're focusing on, um, it was virtually a, a pretty low penalty game. There yeah. weren't, you know, it wasn't double digit penalties on both teams or anything like that, as we've seen over the weekend in, in, in certain um, NFL officiated games. But we're, we're only speaking to the fact that when you're a team like USC and you were three and two going into this game unranked, you can ill afford to, to put this game in the hands of the officials. In other words, what is your mindset going in, knowing that it's third down and you're pressuring if you're EA? You know, at some point when the ball is released, you got to know to try to let off mm -hmm. and depend on the other 10 players um, outside of yourself, the other 10 players on the field to do their job. But instead, a play like that extends the drive, which ultimately leads to um, a field goal to start the fourth quarter. That proved to be the difference. At the time, you may not have known that. But then we can we can we can point to other plays that USC was unable to capitalize on. Going back to the first quarter where they had to settle for three, you know, um, Slovis hits Amon Ross St. Brown over the middle. And granted, you know, it was a throw that Slovis probably would want back. But how many times have we seen an Amon Ross St. Brown make athletic plays and go down and scoop that ball off the ground? Sure. So it was just kind of one of those situations where you weren't sure how many true opportunities you were going to get if you're USC inside of the red zone on the road. But this is the game when you're going up against the ninth team in the country, whether they, they deserve that ranking or not, they are what they are right now. You have to be able to seize those moments and take the air out of the stadium. 
And it took them, they got going in the third quarter, but it took them too long to get going because um, it just, you spotting the team 17 points, 17 unanswered after you put up your first field goal is, is a tough hill to climb, especially when you know that this is the team that, that wants to control the clock, the line of scrimmage. So I was impressed that they were able to get Notre Dame off the field and turn that into points. But what disappointed me about the game plan, as much as I liked the running, was it took them too long to really attack the perimeter and challenge the secondary of Notre Dame. It was as though they granted them too much respect. And that, to me, you're doing your team a disservice. If you're concerned about the corners or the too high safeties at times um, clouding over the, the, um, the receivers, then put them in bunch formations, move them around, do things to get guys like Pittman Jr. and Tyler Vaughn involved early in the game. Instead, again, you rely upon them late in the game, get them going, but it just seemed like you didn't have enough possessions to really take advantage of the size advantages that they posed. And, and Graham Harold talked a lot all week, and, and even during the bye week, about, you know, not, not completely dismissive of what, you know, Washington did against them and what BYU did against them, but certainly said – you know, if people don't show this defense on film and it's not something they do, we don't expect them to do it because they won't be able to be great at it if you don't practice all the time. Notre Dame runs a four-down lineman set. Did, did, did we see that at all against USC? I mean, they had three <laughs> down linemen. They it had looked, three down it linemen. It looked like Washington. It looked like BYU. The, the, now, now you're frustrating me, okay? Sometimes you can be too smart for your own damn good. If you're Graham Harrell, you have to anticipate that, that like the NFL, collegiate football is a copycat league. If something goes well and teams have success, they are going to show it until you demonstrate that you're smart enough to make those corrections. So if you're, if you mean to tell me coming out the bye week, you don't think that a Notre Dame team who has a short amount of time to game plan for you, isn't going to um, show three down linemen, drop eight and see how smart you are. What are your wrinkles? That's an arrogance that will get you beat every time because now you're putting your team at a disadvantage. If you think that, oh, because they only show a 4-3 front, that they're not capable of, of running the dying package, dropping eight in the coverage, taking uh, uh, an interior defensive lineman out since you haven't demonstrated that you can control the line of scrimmage with the running game. So now I am getting frustrated. When I hear something like that, and then you have to hear a, a post-game press release from – Clay Helton, that if you if we just play like this in the second half, we'll win the Pac-12 South and the Pac-12. Well, why do you continue to lower your expectations and set lower standards? It's because you're not making the corrections that are necessary for you to become a, a, um, a, a team that is consistent enough to beat teams like Notre Dame on the road. And that's it. That That's kind of the point I was getting into is – Look, that's if you want to say that during the week, we don't think they're going to run a, a three-man front. We don't think they're going to drop eight because that's not what we've seen them do. That's fine. But when you see it on the field, that's got to be a one-time thing. Everybody look over to the sideline. We've got a plan for that. If they yeah. do that and you score three points in the first half, you were, un, you were not prepared for that. And halftime adjustments, as we saw, meant 
meant nothing in, in terms of winning the game. Yes, they started playing better after you made halftime adjustments. How did you not have that sort of in place going it, into that game? You, you, you've seen it so much that it, it should be a check with me. Like you said, it should be already ingrained. When we see this, these are the plays that we're going to, um, we're going to audible into. These are the plays that we know that can defeat this. Okay. And since you see it so much, why don't you scrimmage it or why don't you script it in practice? Show it in practice so that guys can understand where these windows and where these pockets are. Because best believe, eight man fronts, there are some windows and there are some pockets. But the running game also has to become a critical factor of that. And you have to gash teams that are running eight. With, your offensive line is averaging over 315 yards, uh, 15 pounds. And you, and you can't. You can't double team the uh, the edge rushers and give yourself some interior running lanes. Come on, man, this and, is ridiculous. You know, you see plays where Marquis Step is asked to you know to run wide, and and I understand throwing some stuff in where it's not just okay. When Marquis steps in, it's going a gap. You know, it, it's it's just up the middle, and we're gonna do that over and over and over. But, it, but when it's plays like that that get stopped, it's sort of one of those things where it's like, I don't know what that's, I don't know what that's setting up. You know, I, I don't know that that yeah. just feels kind of like a wasted down. I, I do like that, that you're able to get into that rhythm uh, in the second half. You get four drives, you score three touchdowns and a field goal, but it took, it just took too long. You, you know, you, yep. you talk about a game where you kind of run out of time. If that, if there's a fifth quarter in there, you know, I, I like USC's chance to, to maybe get in there. That doesn't exist. You've got to figure it out after that first drive, and you have to be able to come up with an offense that can move the ball, especially when it's proven later that you do have an offense that can <laughs> And, Eric, what, what are some of the staples of when we think about the, the top echelon teams um, in the country? The one thing that you always equate to them is their ability to control the line of scrimmage, and stop the run. Sure. Okay. If I ask you on either side of the ball, what is the true identity of this team? What do they take away best? Can you answer that? What is what is USC strength offensively? Yeah, okay, I mean, yeah. Now, now that you've seen that when somebody lines up the way Washington did, the way Notre Dame did, they cannot get the ball to Michael Pittman and Tyler Vaughn's. They they cannot do it through the course of a sixty minute game. Boy, that that becomes really tough when if those are your kind of two big weapons on the outside, yeah. a team can just walk into the game and go, no, neither of those two guys are going to beat us. And you can't do enough outside of them to win the game. To win the I, I game. I get that those are two Washington-Notre Dame. Those are two away games against good teams. Boy, I don't think either of those teams are, are winning the national championship this year. I don't think either of no. those teams are – you know, a top five, you know, maybe, maybe even top 10 team by the end of the season. And right. so that becomes, yeah. and, and, that becomes and a tough thing. And defensively. Um, yeah, yeah I, I talked about a few drives where USC has success, but let's, let's, let's keep it real, okay? Um, Clancy Pendergast's scheme is broken. There is something wrong with it when teams are averaging – 250 plus yards a game and, and and that's that is deemed acceptable you have the kid jones uh, tony jones jr 25 attempts 176 yards 
But it wasn't just that. It was book getting outside contained for 54 yards. It was Lindsey's 51-yard we talked about on end around. You know, they had a total of 48 attempts for 320 yards. That is ridiculous. 320 yards is embarrassing. You should yeah. never be giving up 300 yards on the ground and that be deemed acceptable. I mean, Notre Dame, you look at them in the second half as USC made this comeback, uh, four, you know, full drives, not counting the kneel downs, uh, a field goal, a 10 play drive that ended with, with a first down, uh, sorry, a, a fourth down stop, a field goal, and then a 14 play, 75 yard, almost seven minute drive for a touchdown that kind of effectively ended yeah. the game. And, and that was the thing, you know, if if you're, if you're in this game, USC, Notre Dame, and you're going to win, you don't let that happen. That Notre Dame can't drive yeah. 75 yards in 14 nope. plays when at that point offensively, you knew if they could get the ball back down three, heck, if they could get the ball back down six, USC's winning that game. They're going to score right. a touchdown the way that offense had been going. Uh, and they just, they couldn't get it done. And you mentioned kind of those, the misdirection in the backfield, outside runs, it, it almost feels like as soon as the game starts right now, there's sort of a countdown clock. And yep. you don't know what it says, but you know at some point it's hitting zero and the opponent is going to hit on one of those plays. Something hit, like yeah, that because... is coming at some point. And it's yeah. gotten to the point now where, where you almost know for 100% certainty yep. that it's going to work. And gadget plays because – because you know, of, yeah. because they work for big yards, um, but boy, this is six games now, and you're starting to to really. And get the reason why the we say the reason why we always attribute we attribute it to coaching, okay? You have to look at the constants of this coaching staff, Clancy and Clay. And the reason why I say the, the the constants is because there has been so much turnover within this coaching staff that it's almost hard not to focus on. Um, the most influential person on the offensive side and the most influential influential person on the defensive side that is implementing the philosophy and the strategy and everyone else is is tasked to um to to live out that game plan or that philosophy and the same issues that we have offensively with not adjusting to um a, a three a three-man down line versus Clancy unable to, with his fronts, unable to really seal the edges and force teams to have to go vertical on you. It, it's almost an indictment of, of the fact that either you're too stubborn to make these corrections, or, and I hope it's not the latter, you don't know how to make these corrections. Now, Clancy has been coaching for far too long, and there's too much football between his, his staff for me to believe that they don't know how to make those corrections. But for one reason or another, they shouldn't continue to rear its head. Now, if it's a personnel issue and you got the wrong personnel on the field, then you need to open up competition and figure out who your best 11 is that can stay gap sound and seal the edges so that teams aren't having so much success getting outside the pocket and scrambling when you need to get them off the field. So it really, again, there is no, when it's a USC-Notre Dame game, there are no constellation wins, victories. You didn't win the game, but you had every opportunity to steal this victory from, um, uh, from Notre Dame. And 
that would have left such a distaste and a disdain um, in Brian Kelly's uh, mouth for losing to a team that is virtually, in my opinion, still underachieving its full potential. But he recognized that, man, this team is just execution away from really giving us fits. He recognizes that too. But this team right now is so inconsistent that I'm not certain that they really truly understand, USC that is, its true flaws, the areas that it really needs to shore up and improve. Instead, we're going to go into another game, um, homecoming weekend, back in the Coliseum against another mobile quarterback. I hope we can fix the issues that have plagued this team over the last six weeks because moving forward, they're nothing but mobile quarterbacks. Yeah, I, I want to go a little bit in kind of what we expect from, from this team going forward. But before that, I want to go back a little because, again, it, there's so much of this game where you look at sort of how it ended and there's the ability to kind of say, okay, not, you know, probably not nearly as bad as a lot of people thought it might have been based on kind of the trajectory of, of both teams. But when you start really breaking it down, it gets kind of more and more frustrating at the things that were left on the field. But that being said, Keaton Slovis, at this point, I, I almost forget to consider him a true freshman quarterback who has missed games this year. So he's really, I mean, he, he's at, what, game three for him? I mean, that, right. this is not a guy who has a ton of experience. The way he handled himself at Notre Dame in this rivalry, I thought was incredible. The way when you sort of juxtapose what he did at Notre Dame against what he did at BYU – when Graham Harrell says it's about reps and it's about seeing this and it's about not making the same mistakes, I, I thought phenomenal job from Keaton Slovis. Marquis Stepp obviously deserves, you know, every bit of kind of kudos and, and accolades that he's gotten outside of that game. We had been talking about Marquis Stepp, I feel like, from just the first day of spring ball where it right. looked like, I don't know if there's a running back in the Pac-12. That includes Utah's Zach Moss. That includes Arizona State's Eno Benjamin. I don't know if there's a guy that defenses dislike facing more or tackling than Marquis Stepp, and he has really started to show that. Right. Him putting that effort together and certainly getting that touchdown at the end, playing back in Indiana in front of a ton of friends and family, that was, again – it's not going to overshadow the final score and, and where this program is, but I thought that was one of the real kind of feel-good moments um, from that game. And, and then kind of near and dear to your heart, the, the defensive secondary, there were, again, tackling issues. And when it shows up yeah. with a guy like Talanoa Hufunga, which it, it just it feels like sort of a, a crazy, bizarro world situation when he's missing on a couple of, of really important tackles, but then you, you know, he missed time. He had the concussion right. and yep. how quickly can he kind of get back into things? But, but, but outside but, of that, the coverage <laughs> from these really, you know, you, you talk about them being young and experienced. Yeah. That's kind of over now. Cause they've played a lot. We're not hearing it. We're not, passes. we're not seeing a lot of passes being thrown over their head. So it's, it's positive. It's positive, you know, but the, the issues that we're seeing in the in the tackling department really goes back to are the question the fundamental question how much tackling are they actually doing in practice that will prepare them because you can't simulate the emotions that you feel the nerves of live tackling 
when a, when an, an offensive player is coming at you, in order for you to understand the angles, because see, and a lot of our fans may not be aware of this, but a player is designed to take away one part of the body. Either um, if, if, if I'm on the right side of, the, of the, uh, the, the line of scrimmage or the ball and I'm the right corner, my job is to keep the defender on my left shoulder. So I have to hit him with my left shoulder and keep my right hand free. If you're practicing, you can, um, if, you're, if you are tackling in practice, you can simulate these type of angles. But when you're not accustomed to uh, hitting in practice and then you go into a situation where it's a live game, Eric, the problem is this. You can come and you hit them with the wrong shoulder and now you seal yourself and all of a sudden you've taken not only yourself out of the play, but you've taken the ability of the interior defender to do his job. Because when I hit you with my inside arm, keeping my outside arm free, I'm trying to, uh, to push the play back into where my help is coming from and swarming. When I hit you with the wrong arm, my right shoulder, now all of a sudden I've given my body up, I create an edge, and now it, it, it creates a downhill effect. I'm only illustrating that because at the end of the day, I'm not certain that throughout the course of the remaining portion of this year, USC is going to be able to overcome those type of mistakes because in order to do so, you gotta be able to practice it. But the last thing I wanna say about the running game before I turn it back over to you is, this running game, it, it's embarrassing that you got Vivai Malapai, Marquis Step, and Stephen Carr combining for less than 1,000 total yards rushing. Granted, the team in total has uh, 1,008 yards, but you have to, but that accounts for Slovis is 53 and Matt Fink's 20. If you take that out after six games, this team has not rushed for 1,000 yards, and Vivai only has. 418 yards with marquee step 246 263 for Carr. come on man as great of a talent as you have in your backfield we're not effectively using our running backs to the point where teams feel like they have to take away both the pass and the run where do you think moving forward moving forward where do you think this team's kind of headspace is right now i mean arizona is coming in this is not you know not a great arizona team they do have a guy who can be, at times, a great quarterback in Khalil Tate. We, we saw that uh, in the past. It, it feels like maybe, you know, he's, if he's not comfortable in this offense or, or at Arizona or with the coaching staff or whatever, it feels like sometimes he's just not playing up to what, you know, he kind of set as an expectation for himself. But – capable of running for, you know, 200, 250 yards kind of in any game. Do you see USC right now as a team that kind of can come out and beat Arizona, you know, the way they should, the way the talent gap kind of dictates, you know, that, that they should or at least should be able to? Or do you see a, a close loss like this to Notre Dame kind of, you know, maybe potentially dragging them down a little bit as they go forward? You know, it, it all depends on the narrative of how you want to spin this. Um, again, if the players have heard all week against Notre Dame that they were going to get blown out, and then they say, man, if I just would have made these corrections, you know, and whatever spin that uh, Clay Helton is trying to uh, convince them, I do think that they're going to come back to the Coliseum 
excited for homecoming weekend and play with pride. And I do think that you're going to get a good effort. Whether or not USC is capable of putting together three phases, a complete 60-minute game where they're just playing sound football is yet to be determined because we haven't seen it. But make no mistake about it, from an athletic standpoint, they should be a, a two- to three-touchdown favorite over Arizona. But the problem is when the mistakes rear their ugly head and you give those chunk plays away, you allow a team to linger and fester um, over into this game. So for, for me, I do think that the players still feel like they have something to fight for, but you're, you start to lose me when you don't hold me accountable for my mistakes and you just kind of allow it to just go without consequence. And that's what I, I get the sense of that maybe perhaps the players aren't being held as accountable as the coaching staff wanted us to believe during spring and fall camps when they were saying that if mistakes are made we are going to hold players accountable because ultimately if you fix those issues you're talking about running the table and winning the Pac-12 South and there's no more significant or important game than the one that they're facing against Arizona because it is the next Pac-12 South game that's going to determine if they remain undefeated in the Pac-12 South or if we're talking about whether or not Clay Heldon will be losing his job going into the Oregon game. Yeah, I think Arizona is is kind of an interesting game. And, you know, you certainly we talked about BYU, and this was from well before the season, BYU being that trap game. But I think Arizona has a little bit of a, a trap game feel to it now, too. There was so much talk about the first six games of the year, what their record would be, what the state of the program would be. That's done having to sort of keep that dial turned up now when you get a team like Arizona that just, it, it, you know, if Oregon was coming to the Coliseum right now, yes, this team, you know, that, that's an easy yeah. game for this team to get excited about. We'll see kind of what Arizona does for them and their mentality. Certainly Clay Helton has talked about how you have to win all your Pac-12 South games to, you know, almost guarantee yourself a spot in, that Pac-12 uh, championship game. And that's kind of what they're playing for right now. But I think Arizona has not, you know, not saying that they have a chance or, or that it's going to be a game or anything. I think the Arizona game overall yeah. is interesting to see how USC responds. It's kind of a, it, it's been a given that they play so much better at home than on the road. Again, can USC kind of get up and play up to that, what they've shown right. at home? Or is there kind of a, again, a slide? Um, you know, I mean, and it's interesting because you well. don't know, yeah, you don't know which, which Arizona team is going to show up. I mean, they got some formidable running backs and Michael Wiley and John Burton, you know, along with Khalil Tate. And offensively, again, if Khalil is feeling himself playing back in L.A., you know, for perhaps the last time, um, you can get an outer body experience from them. Because again, we've just seen it too many times, going back to the Fresno State game, where quarterbacks seem to, um, you know, just kind of grow a second life-like experience when they're playing in the Coliseum. But for the Trojans, there's a lot for them to play for right now. And this isn't a team that, that seems to emotionally go high and low. But is this a team that is willing to just have that, that Tebow-like moment where Tebow, when, when he lost, I think it was like his junior year, 
he, you know, he had that rallying cry and, and everybody around the team kind of galvanized and rallied behind him uh, for Florida. And he led them to a national title. Is there any leadership on this team that can get these guys turning gear? Because if they're waiting for this coaching staff to do it, I don't get the sense that it's going to happen. So it is going to be on the onus of the senior class and the veterans on this team to really take onerous of this season. It is going to become of what they make of it and what they're willing to tolerate in terms of their own preparation. Um, again, if they come in and they just think that because they're in the Coliseum that Arizona is going to lay down for them, it's going to be another, it's going to be another dog fight. And they can ill afford with Oregon down um, a, a week away to go into a situation where they, um, they don't put this team away early enough to get enough rest for that, that powerhouse coming in in two weeks. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see kind of how things go. Um, USC gets Arizona, then at the, the Friday game at Colorado, then Oregon to the Coliseum. Yeah, right. so, so they've got some – there's, again, for the amount of talk about how the front half of the schedule was so loaded – They've got some tricky games in the back half. Colorado certainly does not look great, but that's a Friday night game at Colorado, Oregon at the Coliseum. Then you've got back-to-back -back road trips at Arizona State and at Cal. Neither of those kind of look like the gimmies um, right. or the, the easy games that maybe you thought at the beginning of the season. And then for however bad UCLA wants to look for a full season, boy, did they put it together last year at the end of the season. So, again, these next six – it doesn't feel like it gets a whole lot easier than the first six. So, so again, we're going to learn a lot about this USC team uh, as the season goes along. So for Daryl Rideau, this is Eric McKinney. That's the look back at USC taking that 30-27 to 27 loss against Notre Dame and a little bit of a spin ahead uh, into homecoming, 6.30 p.m. Saturday night at the Coliseum against the Arizona Wildcats. Again, for Daryl Rideau, this is Eric McKinney. Thanks for listening to the Monday Morning Cornerback.